Hello, everyone, and welcome to Consumer Watchdog's Rage for Justice Report. I'm your host, Carmen Balber. I'm Executive Director of Consumer Watchdog, uh, and thank you for joining us today. Um, we are still broadcasting remotely, so thanks for your patience with any sound issues, but we seem to be getting the knack of it. Um, and I, I think you'll really be glad uh, you joined us uh, this week. Uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to our guest today. Um, he is a person uh, who I met just a few years ago, um, but really embodies the rage for justice uh, in the name of the podcast. Um, Charles and I uh, met a few years ago when I learned about the uh, unspeakable tragedy that his family went through uh, three years ago this week um, and became to uh, and came to learn about his incredible advocacy for change uh, to protect uh, families uh, in response to their loss. Uh, so Charles Johnson, uh, welcome to the podcast. Oh, Carmen, thank you so much for having me. It's really, truly an honor to get a chance to, to speak with you. Um, you know, on a, on a personal note, um, you know, you are responsible for a huge turn in a positive direction uh, on this journey for me. And we'll talk about a little bit that as far as, you know, my journey from a, a, a legal standpoint. Um, and on a professional level, just so grateful to have an ally like Consumer Watchdog and just so appreciative for the entire team there and your relentless, relentless work on behalf of um, making just our country a better, safer place for um, for customers and, and families. So extremely proud and fortunate to um, have this wonderful working relationship and looking forward to changing the world together with you guys. So are we. Well, thank you for those those kind words, Charles. And, you know, the only reason we're able to make any sort of change is because uh, people like you are willing to to stand up and, and tell their truth, however, however painful those stories are. So maybe I maybe we should just open with why this all started for you um, and why this week in particular is an important week. This week is Black Maternal Justice Week here in the United States. And we'll circle back and bring this full circle. But a little bit about myself is uh, I am the very proud father of two amazing kids, but just so fortunate and just really met a woman that absolutely changed my life, Carmen. And so we talk about Kira. We're talking about a woman that was a skydiver who spoke five languages fluently and just really amazing, amazing person. And so we were blessed to welcome our first son, Charles, in 2014, and we were over the moon, Carmen, we found out we were welcoming our second son, Langston, uh, shortly thereafter. And so our boys were uh, going to be 18 months apart, and this is everything we had talked about, everything we had prayed for, just having these two really cool um, little guys who would grow into young men and hopefully men that would just have a wonderful impact on the world. So uh, I'm, in, I'm in a native of Atlanta, Georgia, and we had recently relocated to Los Angeles, California. And uh, when we were expecting our second son, Langston, uh, Kira had a very healthy pregnancy, no complications, was in great shape, great health. And we walked into Cedar sinai Medical Center on April 12th of 2016, what we, I'm sorry, on April 12th of 2016, for what we expected to be the happiest day of our lives, 
and walked directly into a nightmare. Uh, we showed up who was supposed to be a routine scheduled C-section. And we went in for the delivery uh, at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Langston was born perfectly healthy, um, no complications, 10 fingers, 10 toes. And shortly after that, they took us back to recovery. He arrives, this beautiful, beautiful new baby boy. And we're just on top of the world. It was such an amazing, amazing feeling. But that really quickly changed. And so as I'm back there in recovery, Kira's resting. Uh, the baby's resting. As I'm sitting there by Kira's bedside, I begin to see blood coming into her catheter, her Foley catheter. I was a little bit alarmed, so I brought it to the attention of the doctors and the nurses at Cedar sinai Keep in mind, this is around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So they come in, they assess Kira, they examine her, they, um, you know, take all her vitals. And they did several things at that point. They ordered blood work, and they also ordered a CT scan that was supposed to perform STAT. And so at that time, STAT means to me, and I'm sure your audience would agree, STAT means right away. happened right, right away, immediately. And so I'm a little bit concerned, but keep in mind, at this point, my wife is healthy, my baby's healthy, and we're at what's supposed to be one of the best hospitals in the country. So uh, this is around 4 o'clock when all this happens. So about 30 minutes go by, all her blood work comes back. It's showing that all her levels, her blood levels are abnormally low. It's She's painful to the touch, and um, you know she's beginning to lose color. But still, they haven't performed this CT scan. Five o'clock comes, they haven't performed the CT scan. They did, however, perform ultrasound. On the ultrasound, they can see that her abdomen is beginning to fill with fluid or blood. But five o'clock comes, no CT scan. Six o'clock comes, still haven't performed the CT scan, right? And I'm asking, well, look, where's the CT scan? When are y'all coming? What are we doing? And they're telling me, oh, it's just coming, it's coming, it's coming. So seven o'clock comes, Carmen. By seven o'clock, uh, Kira is shivering uncontrollably, right? She's in a lot of pain. And she's shivering because she's losing so much blood. And I'm still asking once again, hey, look, where's the CT scan? You said it was going to perform. Saying, oh, it's coming. Well, I'll check back with you. Nothing. Seven o'clock comes. Eight o'clock comes. Still no CT scan. Nine o'clock comes. Now, but this time, they're giving her... IV fluids. Um, she's having more and more a hard, difficult time just even staying awake. She attempted to breastfeed, um, but in a lot of pain and just her condition is clearly rapidly deteriorating. And I'm just asking this entire time for help. I'm asking the nurses, I'm asking the doctors, and we're getting this unreal runaround from everybody on the staff. And Nine o'clock comes, ten o'clock comes, and eleven o'clock comes. Eleven o'clock comes, and they still haven't taken Kira back for surgery. They still haven't performed a CT scan that was supposed to be performed at four o'clock. And so midnight comes, and it wasn't until around twelve thirty a.m. the following morning that they finally made the decision to take Kira back to surgery. And when they took her back to surgery, you know, we're walking down the hall and, um, you know, 
she's saying to me, baby, I'm scared. And I'm doing my best to reassure her that everything's going to be okay, that you're going to go in, they're going to fix it. And, you know, we finally get to a point on that walk that we just can't go any further. And um, they wheelchair into the operating room and those doors closed behind her. And that was the last time I saw my wife alive. When they took her back to surgery, and this is important for your listeners to understand, and this is difficult every time I say it. When they took her back to surgery, they opened her up and she had three and a half liters of blood in her abdomen from where she had been allowed to deteriorate and bleed internally for almost 10 hours while our pleas for help and cries and advocacy on behalf of Kira just fell on deaf ears. And so for me, walking into that hospital that afternoon with a woman that was not only in good health, Carmen, but in exceptional health, and trying to conceive the fact that she would never walk out to raise her boys um, never crossed my mind. And so when they took her back into surgery, they opened her up. And when they opened her up, her heart stopped immediately and she did not survive. The story is so painful to hear every time I've heard it. And this is not the first, but I just want to put a point on something that you said, uh, which is sure. that um, uh, she had three and a half liters of blood in her abdomen. And that this was an entirely preventable death. Um, complications, of course, always happen in medical care. Uh, but this was an identifiable and preventable problem. Kira's life could have easily been saved if just uh, the hospital had listened to your pleas. Very, very, very true. And that's one of the things that um, is the most painful about this for me, right? Because you're absolutely right. What happened to Kira was completely preventable. There were signs immediately after she came out of the first surgery, the delivery, that she was bleeding internally. What we have is not a mistake, because you're absolutely right, mistakes happen. But what happened to Kira was um, a complete failure, a failure uh, of systems, a failure of humanity, and it was really just delay and denial, delay and denial. And um, we can talk a little bit more about some of the, the systems that broke down, but everything that possibly could have went wrong in Cure's case went wrong. The way that this has been described to us by medical experts that have reviewed the records is that what happened to Cure is not a medical tragedy, it's a medical catastrophe. Um, and you're absolutely right, it should not have happened and Cure should be here. Um, today with her boys. So then um, you learn two things after this. Um, I think that are part of the reason um, your advocacy is so important. And one is about a law that our listeners know a lot about because we've been talking about it for months now, sure. uh, which is California's cap on compensation uh, when a loved one dies from medical negligence. So maybe you can tell us just a little bit about what you learned about that law when you went to seek uh, accountability for what happened to Yeah, happened absolutely. So I, of course, had no clue about uh, any of the laws and, and so much pain and just really trying to put one for, foot in front of the other. I had, I, the last thing on my mind was trying to really seek accountability. But when that time came and I started talking to lawyers, 
I understood that, in fact, in the state of California, there are these ridiculously outdated laws and really unconstitutional laws, like we talk about the microcaps, that limit the value of a person's life at $250,000, right? And it's still even shocking when I say that out loud, right? For me to conceive of the fact that one, first and foremost, you could put a value on something that was so precious and absolutely priceless to myself, absolutely priceless to my boys, is crazy. But then to literally and figuratively add insult to injury to find out that in the state of California, they limit the value of a person's life in instances of medical negligence to $250,000 is crazy. And so subsequently, what that, had, what that meant for me is I found an attorney um, that was going to take the case, but immediately everything he was doing was pressuring me to settle. This is about so much more than just money. This is about accountability and being able to have transparent, being able to have closure and understanding about what happened. But most importantly, Carmen, as you mentioned, making sure that steps are being taken to ensure that what happened to Kira doesn't happen to anybody else. And because these case, because these caps were in place, there was no mechanism, even to this day, Cedar sinai has not told me anything about what happened to Kira, what's been happening from their internal investigation, but more importantly, what they're doing to take steps to prevent this from happening to other women. And because they don't have to, because they are protected by these ridiculous medical malpractice caps. And it's, um, it's extremely unfortunate. And let me, and, you know, to put a fine point on that, the reason this, this cap forced you into the situation like this is because when the maximum value of a case is capped at $250,000 in 1975 dollars, which is about 50 grand today, uh, it costs as much to continue to pursue a case as you could ever recover. And so at some point, uh, you know, that lawyer is practically taking on a pro bono job uh, in order to keep pursuing something because the hospital has no uh, has no financial incentive uh, to do the right thing um, because of the cap. And so, you know, that's that's why we're we're so appreciative that you decided to um, share Kara's story with the world because it will it puts a it puts a very uh, clear spotlight on why this law prevents patients uh, patient care from getting better. And maybe that brings us to the other really important piece of the story, which is that um, it is a, a particular crisis uh, for black moms in California and in America. Um, and you've been uh, a really powerful advocate. Uh, on that front as well. And maybe you want to um, share a little bit of that work too. Sure, sure. So let's jump right into this. When this first happened to me, I thought, and happened to us and happened to Kira, I thought that a woman dying in exceptional health in America in 2016 was a thing of the past. I thought this is something that just doesn't happen. Um, but what I found out shortly thereafter is that we are in the midst of a maternal mortality crisis in the United States. And in fact, the United States leads the civilized world 
in women dying in childbirth. So about 800 women are dying annually from preventable causes related to childbirth. That's more than two women dying every day. Right here in the United States, two women will die today, someplace in the United States, giving the gift of life. And so for me, I was shocked. And even furthermore, we have these ridiculous racial disparities. So in addition to this being shameful on a global scale, we talk about the disparities and how this is disproportionately affecting African-American women and women of color. African-American women are dying four to five times as often, three to four times as often as their Caucasian counterparts. And when I found out about this, I was shocked. And I felt like I had to do something about it. And, you know, that's when I really made the decision to share Kira's story publicly, not knowing what to expect, but just hoping that by sharing Kira's story publicly, that it would bring some attention to this topic. Because in 2016, nobody was talking about this. Well, you know, I think, Charles, that you deserve so much credit uh, for deciding to tell Kara's story in the public way that you did, because it really did launch, um, have a huge part in launching the national recognition of this maternal health crisis, and particularly the Black maternal health crisis. Um, this has been a, a, a very intense journey, but as you said, it was so proud of the fact that in 2018, we were able to uh, pass the first ever federal piece of legislation uh, to stop, to, to, to impact this problem, right? So it's called the Preventing Maternal, uh, Maternal Deaths Act. In 2018, we got that passed. Um, but that's just the beginning, because that bill will go a long way to studying, understanding the crisis. But now we have to have more comprehensive, more aggressive legislation um, and policy reform to protect women further, because what's the what's been happening is unacceptable. So currently, um, I just introduced uh, in in conjunction with the Black Maternal Health Caucus a comprehensive package of bills of nine different federal bills called the Momnibus Bill, and they've been put together. Yeah, it's called the Momnibus Bill, right? <laughs> and so we introduced that uh, at the first week of March, and what this what these bills will do is they will address all the different aspects of the maternal health crisis from the racial disparities from social determinants of health meaning um what are the social factors that are impacting women dying do they have access to transportation to get them to obstetrical care do they have adequate uh paid leave um, we have a bill in there that is specifically uh, focused on using technology to better serve women, right? How can we quanti quantify blood loss in a more accurate way through technology? How can we use telemedicine to serve women um, who don't, who have social barriers to care? How can we use all types of technology? We have a specific bill that uh, addresses the needs of our are women who are in military service, right? People oftentimes don't even think about how they're overlooked and very vulnerable. And so we're proud and in, 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 in that bill, in that package is uh, the Cure Dixon uh, law. And I'm sorry, the Cure, the Cure Johnson Act, you know, AKA Cures Law. And what this bill will do is it will not only provide funding for uh, community-based care, um, 
additional funding for doula care around organizations that serve women of color. But very importantly, it will work towards setting a comprehensive standard of care across the board and increased accountability, because that's what I'm all about. One of the neat things that I'm most proud of is it will provide funding to, to create independent quality of care and dignified care compliance offices within hospitals that are independent from the hospital. So how does this work? If someone has an instance where they feel they've been discriminated against, um, they've been neglected, there will be an office inside of that hospital where they can voice their concerns, right? That will be very importantly independent from the hospital. And the federal government will collect that data and then publish those reports. So it goes a long way towards what we need in this country is we've got to change this healthcare system to one that puts patients over profit and doesn't protect and allow um, negligent providers to hide behind a veil of lack of accountability. Well, I think that is probably a good place uh, to close for today. Thanks so much for all your work, Charles, um, wow. for sharing Kira's story, for joining us today. Oh, it's my honor. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I, to repeat, just in case anyone wants to learn more about the Momnibus, uh, which is an amazing name, uh, I'm very impressed with that one, um, or the Fairness for Injured Patients Act, uh, which is the California ballot measure we're working on to update uh, that 1975 cap, uh, you can go to For Kira for Moms, uh, which is Charles's website, or consumerwatchdog.org, which is ours. Um, so that's the end of the show all thank you for listening this has been the Rage for Justice report and don't forget to subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening <laughs>